Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, who I can't see, but I trust that I remember what you look like. Hello. Hey, Aaron. Aaron, we're always by your side. We'll never leave. I, I can tell you exactly how long you've been uh, by my side because the guest for this week's show was on Longform Podcast number 15. He is now back. Uh, his name is Yikes. Yeah, uh, I was uh, I was like looking it up when I went to email him, and then it like I had to pause for like two weeks to consider the fact that there's a person who was on this show over ten years ago, <laughs> just to ponder your own mortality. Just to ponder my own mortality, but he's doing something quite different uh, now than he was then. Uh, so the uh, guest is uh, Jonah Weiner. He was previously a journalist, probably most notably for the New York Times Magazine. He wrote a story that's always really struck with me about this artist, Trevor Paglin, who like takes photos of secret military bases. Anyway, uh, in a career pivot while still doing that kind of writing, he runs a newsletter, which I really enjoy, called Blackbird Spy Plane. Uh, it is ostensibly about clothes, fashion. But it's a lot more than that. It's also about culture. It's written in a very unique voice. And I think approaches the idea of a community around a newsletter quite uniquely. And he's also someone I wanted to have on because he's built a real like business around this. He uh, has invested a lot of life in it. And I think he's taken a different path maybe than some other writers who've moved over from magazine writing to Substack and how he approaches it. So great conversation. Well, Aaron, anytime you use the phrase invested a lot of life into it, I know that it's a, a thing that you're passionate about. I, that's like that's a metric by which you look at the world. Did they invest their life into it? So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. It's a callback to us uh, investing over one decade in this show, which is uh, <laughs> shocking, horrifying, and has me wanting to talk to other people who've wasted uh, years of their life. Wasted? Uh, That's pretty harsh. 
We are brought to you in partnership with... Wasted is a strong word. Guys, I just want to apologize for my conduct in this introduction. Uh, We're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. Now here's Aaron with Jonah Weiner. Welcome, Jonah Weiner. Hey, hey, Aaron, how's it going? Okay, so the last time I talked to you, more than 10 years ago, you were mostly a magazine feature writer for places like New York Times Magazine, and you still are, but you are also now running Blackbird Spy Plane, which is uh, one of my favorite newsletters. Oh, thank you. So I guess I'm interested, how did that happen? How did you go from point A to point B? It's almost as though a lot has happened in 11 years, huh? (laughs) Take you back to it's uh, midway through the Obama administration. You're a magazine writer. What made you want to do something on your own? Yeah, it's funny. I had always, you know, going back by some calculations to you know middle school or even elementary school, sort of cared about clothes. And you know, for people who are unfamiliar, Blackbird Spy Plane, this newsletter that you're talking about, I do it with my wife, and we call it like a style and culture newsletter, but, you know, there's an emphasis on style. And so that's been an interest of mine, you know, going back years and years and years. And yet for whatever reason, that was never an interest that I found a way to reconcile or even really wanted to reconcile with like what I was writing, you know, as a magazine writer. And so during the lockdown, you know, I was unable to do what I normally do with my magazine pieces, which is travel to spend a lot of time in close proximity with people who make things and watch them do that. You know, that's, you know, 99% of the pieces I published, that's how they take shape and that's how the reporting takes shape. And so having this interest in clothes and style, uh, having all this sort of pent up internal monologuing inside my head, you know, I don't need to set the scene for people spring 2020, you know, uh, sitting at the kitchen table uh, with Aaron, my wife, who used to be a trend forecaster. Now she's a talent scout for the industrial design team at Apple. Um, We both sort of care about this stuff. And we figured, let's try and do this sort of strange newsletter and see if it gets traction. I didn't try to describe it because I felt like I would badly describe the newsletter. And I think if you're hearing like fashion and culture, you might be imagining a more zoomed out GQ kind of menswear take. And the newsletter is very much written in your own voice and not a voice that like I would have known from your like other writing. And I'm curious, like as you develop that and we're kind of just like, hey, I'm going for it. This is how I'm going to write this what that process was like, what it's like being like edited in that voice, if you are indeed edited in that voice. Well, the, my, my, my New York Times Magazine contract writer uh, brain edits my um, Blackbird <laughs> Spy Plane brain or, or, yeah. or tries to and fails. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, again, for people who are unfamiliar, uh, one of the things that is sort of immediately apparent is, yeah, the voice and even sort of the styling are, I don't know, sui generis or something. There's a lot of all caps. There's a lot of bolded text. And I think actually, even when the writing is pretty, quote unquote, straightforward or unadorned or normal, just even just seeing bold in all caps, like does, you know, so much to the brain to kind of clue you in. I don't know that um, something untraditional is happening, at least relative to the kind of stuff that I write for the Times. 
it, it's a version of myself. It's a hyperbolic version of myself. And I think um, it keeps it fun for me. It doesn't feel like a job, you know, ideally it keeps it fun for readers. And I think that there actually is this function that I like a lot where X out of 10 people coming to it are going to their eyes are going to cross and they're going to say, I'm out, no thanks. And that's fine because the Y out of 10 who stick around feel that much more in on something. And it, you know, again, just makes it feel like a, a funky special place. The other thing is just like, for me, it, it, I guess it sort of helps demarcate in my brain that I'm shifting tracks. But I mean, it's funny. It, it just goes to show like New Yorker voice is its own performed voice. Absolutely. New York Times Magazine is its own performed voice. Absolutely. I mean, and in a way, I'm sort of like loath to ask someone like, it feels like asking someone to like explain the joke when you ask them to talk about the voice they write in, but no one is ever asked to explain why you wrote a New Yorker feature in New Yorker voice. But I was remarking while I was preparing for this interview on how much of the the stuff I consume is kind of like more like hanging out with a friend mm. than it is like being written to um, in a let's transmit facts to each other kind of way. And, and that wasn't yeah. true probably a, a decade ago as strongly. Well, you know, yeah, it's really interesting. I think this is like so, so central to so many changes in in media, right? Let's say, you know, since the last time you and I talked, right? Since the last time we did this. Um, and there are certain people who write profiles uh, at the, the magazines where I, you know, where I write profiles who do a good job connecting with readers by making themselves characters. There's a lot of first person. There's a lot of what I was thinking on my way to Gwyneth Paltrow's house, you know, and, and what had happened to me two nights before in my kitchen and what was on the wall of the kitchen, what my kids said to me and sort of, you know, in, uh, you know, on, on my way to the interview. Um, and that was a mode of profile narrating or writing that wasn't for me personally. But I think that there, that is certainly like a form of magazine writing that you can sort of see on a continuum with what's happening now, the kind of the hang out with a friend mode that, you know, is familiar to us from listening to podcasts or, yeah, reading blogs and now reading newsletters. And yeah, I mean, it's it's so straight up, it flatters the ego to be like, you know, oh, these people like me, as opposed to this sort of sober, detached profile I wrote. Um, I mean, we could sort of probably pull a lot of different layers of uh, of that onion off and, and think well, about it. Well, one layer I'd like to pull off is sort of, you said, like, that wasn't for me. How did you know that wasn't for you? And like, like why is Blackbird spy plane for you, but including yourself in a like magazine story, not for you? Mm, yeah, well, I, I think it's because specifically when I come to a profile of someone who makes things, which is sort of how I describe, because I, you know, I, I've done a fair amount of profiles of actors and people in the public eye, but sometimes I've written about people who are pretty obscure, um, and the sort of common thread is that they're typically pretty good at making a thing. And I like to sort of get in orbit, watch them make it. So, so whether I'm writing one of those pieces or reading one of them, even if it's with someone you know, as sort of quote unquote textbook celebrity profiles, you'd think, you know, it's like a Bradley Cooper profile, which I did, you know, like years and years ago, where I proceed from as a reader and a writer is, well, this person is interesting because they're good at doing something, not merely because of 
sort of celebrity apparatus, though that's necessarily part of it. But for me, the profiles historically that I kind of like thrill to and get a lot out of illuminate something of a creative process and illuminate something about, you know, how things get made and sort of creative puzzles and problems getting worked through. And so broadly speaking, that's kind of at cross purposes. If I pick up a piece and I say, okay, let me figure out why Bradley Cooper is, is where he's at now. There's a reported piece that'll tell you kind of industry stuff, but in terms of like a profile of an artist, I want to know when he plays the elephant man on stage, how is he approaching that role? And then how does he bring that thinking into, I don't know, whatever the hangover part three or whatever it is. That's just kind of what I want out of it. I want craft, I want process. And so a writer talking about what they were thinking and the, the problem they had at the rental car counter on the way to meet him can make for something fun, but it's sort of across purposes with my, my ideal version of what I want out of a profile with someone who makes something. Yeah. I identify with certain parts of that, like particularly in the feeling sometimes of like, what if there's only one of this? Mm. Like there's a certain threshold of great, but like perhaps not like mass media art. And sometimes when I'm reading something like an extended profile, I'm like, this might be it. This might be the only thing I ever learn about this person. And therefore I am sort of looking for a certain like density of craft details, really. If, I mean, if that's the person we're talking about, like, and that's very much like you did a profile of Michael Mann that I would sort of file under that. I think that's probably the only profile I've read of Michael Mann. And there's definitely like lingering details in my mind about the minutia of Michael Mann's craft. Mm. You, you said earlier that like some people are going to come and just be like, this isn't for me. When you find someone who it is for them, what kind of a, a journey are you trying to take people on? What do you go from there in terms of your thinking about the audience? Well, I guess I don't really. And, and, and this is a way to kind of like maybe circle back and answer the half of your question that I didn't answer before. If, if sort of the question was why not insert yourself into mm -hmm. magazine writing and then why do you feel a comfort with the newsletter? I mean, w one voice pretends to or performs a degree of authority, which I'm not trying to do with the newsletter. It's, it's held to a slightly less high standard than, yeah, this might be the one definitive profile of Michael Mann. I don't know. It keeps it bloggy. It keeps it casual. It keeps it chatty. So I'm not really thinking in any kind of overarching authoritative programmatic way about like the journey I'll bring that person on. It's it's really kind of like come hang out with someone who's enthusiastic about stuff and thinks about it more than he probably uh, needs to. Um, and, and that's it. Come hang out. Ironically, that gives you greater authority because like if I read like someone's like list of like, I don't know, six like shirts to buy for the Christmas series and it's transparently a piece of branding, I guess, maybe even just because I've spent too much time around magazine people, I can see the sequence of publicists and emails that generated this list. Totally. It's a very different thing than reading from the perspective of someone who has a true enthusiasm and passion for something that exceeds my own, but I can identify it with the things that I care about that much. Mm-hmm. What like what have you learned about sort of conveying that enthusiasm and conveying those details and like what people actually want to hear about what you're enthusiastic about? 
Mm. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, first off, like just to, uh, to hang off something that you just said, like, yeah, I mean, we don't accept gifts. We don't take any money from anyone except for subscribers. And that keeps the kind of like proposition very clear in our heads. And I think it keeps it pretty clear in readers' heads too, that, yeah, I mean, as you said, you don't need to have worked at magazines to sort of like essentially, you know, I don't know, conjure up that chain of, you know, literal or, you know, proverbial like PR emails that led into the five t-shirts that we can't stop thinking about type listicles. I mean, that like anyone now encounters something like that and just like feels like spawn, spawn, spawn. There are all kinds of incentives and reasons at a fashion magazine for people, you know, the individuals making that magazine are proceeding from expertise and enthusiasm, but there are all these other things in the business that are just going to manifest in shit that those people don't actually think is cool uh, showing up in the pages of their magazine. And so like, yeah, one clear proposition with a newsletter is just like, if it's in here, it's because we like it, right? So that's like something that is worth stressing because selling out is an antiquated notion. Maybe that's actually like an outdated phrase. Maybe selling out is as a kind of like thing to pillory and be wary of might be enjoying some kind of qualified comeback. I don't know. Maybe it has (laughs) been over the last few years, but you know, broadly speaking, Anyway, yeah, th- that's important to us because I think a lot of people might sort of, without reading it a little bit, might assume like, oh, yeah, this is just going to be have, have a bunch of affiliate links. And to be precise, we do like when we link to eBay, like one vintage sweatshirt that we found will often stick in like eBay affiliate links. But that's not like, hey, here's the, the, the greatest toaster on the market right now. And we're going to sell 10,000 of these and see a cut off that. It's like 30 cents. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because it's, it's not like some form of corruption that I draw the distinction between those two things. They just feel different. Like another choice I I notice uh, in the choices you've made around the newsletter is it doesn't seem like you've heavily leaned into selling merch. I think you like had like a very limited run at like one time. There isn't like a, oh, and we're expanding to have a website and there's going to be a spinoff about natural wines. Like, it conveys a like lack of like expansionist media empire maneuvering where, you know, small things become unsuccessful, bigger things being kind of the general trajectory. How do you think about that? Like as it becomes a bigger part of your life over time? Oh yeah, totally. Well, I mean, yeah, we've done a couple, there's, there's one initial like t-shirt thing where I, I made a drawing, um, that ran on some screen printed t-shirts and then there was another one a drop maybe like a year after that and that's it limited like there's no restock it's not like an internally stocked store that's nice because i mean yeah it makes dough which is cool but also it sort of creates these souvenirs um yeah uh, of a thing and and in a newsletter that is often about sort of like physical talismans that we sort of imbue with whatever stories or affection or love it's nice to create sparingly some physical talismans but that said yeah like it would just sort of depress us especially just like i don't know there's just so many fucking clothes out there uh, and we, <laughs> we of course are like excruciatingly like familiar with that and it can be depressing to contemplate the kilotons of like cotton and what went into those just choking <laughs> choking the supply chains right now and and stores and sale racks and landfills etc so that you know we can spiral out and we we are on the side of not doing that to the other point yeah i mean I'm kind of an idiot 
generally speaking, but certainly when it comes to like questions of finance, but it's like, it's a VC thing, right? It's investors who want to see a certain return on something who are going to, you know, encourage something to grow and grow and grow and kind of get as big as it can. And I think sort of from a user end, we all have the experience of encountering a thing that is relatively small, that does a thing we like. And that could be an app, that could be a podcast, that could be a clothing company, I mean, whatever it is, a small thing that does a thing we like. And then we sort of inexorably find ourselves liking that thing less because they start doing a bunch of other things and not doing the thing we liked as much. And it could be as simple as like, oh, I found this pair of jeans from the small brand and then they get big and suddenly like the denim they use is different and they don't feel as good. So it's nice to just have something that, and this is about this kind of Patreon, Substack kind of crowdsource you know, funding model time that we're in now, where the proposition is always as simple as people pay $5 a month for it. And it just keeps it so simple. We don't need to think about doing a bunch of other stuff. We also just sort of err on the side of saying no, it's just sort of like how we're disposed, uh, almost just sort of reflexively. <laughs> so that's another part of it. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I realize that the sort of Substack Patreon era is probably like the most new thing to talk about with the people on the show, yeah. but I've struggled to talk about it partially because this show isn't primarily about like 
the economics or business of writing. I, I think we generally try and talk in a more editorial sense, but I think there's also something distinct editorially in that the bulk of people who jumped from magazine writing into say like the Substack world generally sort of fits into, there's a lot of people writing about politics, about internet culture, media criticism. And what you've done is kind of different. You've sort of pushed into a niche where there's not like an existing similar thing, mm. which puts you outside of some of that competition for everyone's $5 a month. But also I means it's, it's almost harder to describe. Like if you're recommending it to someone, like w what kind of a thing you're getting, what kind of advice would you have for someone in sort of seeking out a new niche newsletter topic? <laughs> Boy, if it's hard for you to extrapolate from kind of the, the two newsletters that show up from Blackbird's by playing in your inbox, you know, every week into some kind of like quick elevator pitch description, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just as hard for me to like extrapolate this kind of, you know, I, I mean, so much of it is, look, this is the thing is like, there's not necessarily a lot of planning and forethought and like bird's eye view shit that goes into making this thing. Um, I mean, one of the things that helps me do it is I'm just sort of, I always have been just like a fast writer and there's so, you're just doing stuff so quickly and kind of going off reflex, but let's see. I mean, in part, I think that it's like a truism that is demonstrated over and over again that sort of people click on negativity, let's say. Uh, you could extrapolate from that into saying that then sort of stridently expressed political opinions are going to attract readers and they're going to keep reading you, whether they're hate reading you or what, they're going to keep clicking. Um, I think that at a certain point, it was seen that Substack was kind of like this almost kind of like outgrowth of Twitter, functionally speaking, which was to say the thinking was, oh, you know, like whatever gets people really mad and quote dunking and, you know, worked up over Twitter, that's money on the table that can be, you know, monetized by actually pointing off the site to sort of longer reckonings with what are essentially kind of like Twitter arguments. There's a kind of, I think, partially fair, probably substantially unfair view of what happens at Substack as just kind of like long form Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. um, the way that Blackbird Spyplane... Um, intervenes in that is one by like when four seasons landscaping company do you, do you remember this like trump showed up at like I did. right like whenever like for the 24 to 36 hours that everyone was making four seasons total landscaping jokes blackboard spy plane was a place that did not mention that at all right so there's like part of it's just like the oasis effect like just like counter programming by not talking about all this dumb shit that everyone's talking about but the other thing is actually sort of finding places where sort of cultural criticism and politics can kind of intersect with and open up a discussion of let's say vintage t-shirts and like cool vintage t-shirts i mean i have like there's a lot of versions of this that i think we've done over the years but like just the other day i published the thing about essentially like what we called black pilled or like cursed garments and pieces of clothing which are basically just things that feel pretty fucked up and harsh and yet have a kind of dark I know, semiotically complex alert to them. So like Lockheed Martin sweatshirts, Monsanto caps, Joe Camel t-shirts, you know, things that are kind of grody and cursed and yet sort of thinking about ways in which those might offer, I don't know, opportunities for whatever, semiotic play, trying to tease through that. Yeah. So there have been times where sort of, it, it isn't merely this kind of thing bobbing off in its own universe, but sort of finding ways to sort of tie it into some broader, like unprogrammatic uh, vision of kind of what life is like now. And, you know, 
I don't know. So, so that's where it's sort of like not not kind of purely off in its own uh, alternate dimension, but sort of finding ways to um, create little wormholes into that kind of mode of, let's say, politics writing that obviously we don't do, but we can kind of participate in. That's obviously really, really big on Substack. Like if you look at the biggest newsletters, they're all on the politics side. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I probably am subscribed to 25 of those politics um sub stacks not the paid versions but the like you know the once in a while and i just haven't opened them so i'm when you reference like connecting into politics i sort of actually know like which you know newsletter of yours i read that fulfilled that i guess and once you find an audience like coming back sort of to the idea of like you know finding people to hang out with every week whether it's in the podcast or newsletter format I become interested in sort of like other things. Like I enjoy Blackbird Spy Planes, like travel recommendations, because you've done sort of two pieces of work, which is filter a very specific subset audience and then be like, Mm. where would you go out in Tokyo? And that's actually in some ways much more valuable to me than anything I could find on the open Internet. I don't know. It, it, it is so multifarious. And at a certain point, once you've got this, you know, as you said, this sort of interconnected, internally coherent, you know, world that you've built up, um, you can kind of like, I don't know, trust that uh, the spy plane take on, you know, some glancing like engagement with politics will feel spy plane-y the same way that the spy plane take on a used t-shirt would or a, or a hi-fi bar in Japan, right? Just like at a certain point, the sensibility kind of becomes its own organizing principle. What has it been like for you personally having this like personal voice? Like it's about your life, you know, like the real person, you not just like the journalist, you, um, how has that changed how you live? Um, well, not much because I mean, uh, it's not like we have a set of rules, like literally, but I think we have a kind of, um, I don't know, kind of like an internal sensor of kind of like both what people would be interested in knowing about us, but also kind of like what, you know, strangers need to know about us, you know? And, and so like in part, um, you know, another function of the voice is to kind of like wear a bit of a mask and be in a bit of a persona and kind of keep some sense of myself, like pretty recognizably for myself. Right. Mm. Um, I mean, that said, like in a way that at this point is just basically purely gratifying, like it's cool to be, back in, you know, I moved out to the Bay. It's another thing that happened since, you know, I talked last time I lived in New York then, but to be back in New York and just be walking down the street and have people go, Blackbird's by plane. <laughs> hey, Jonah. Um, because my face is like pretty like prominently displayed on the Instagram feed and sometimes in the newsletters. That's gratifying because like there, it's just kind of like, let's be real, like an ego boost. Like, whoa, I feel like a celebrity. Someone recognized me more to the point, you know, or more valuably. It's like, oh, this thing that we're doing that can feel weird and feel obscure is like connecting with people. And so that's just sort of this like fun, pleasant anecdotal marker of it. Um, And otherwise, I guess like, yeah, to like to be totally real. And this is an absolute true thing about the Patreon model. It's both about needing to share some sort of like quote unquote candid feeling version of yourself with people and kind of commodify that. It's also just about the demand, the endless demand for more and more and more, right? The more you post, the better that is for your bottom line. 
I couldn't possibly post every day, but if I did, there would be a number of people who'd be like, this is too much. I'm out of here. And that's how I would be as a reader, but you'd be have more people coming in, right? So just that drive to constantly be thinking about, I got to write the newsletter. I got to write the newsletter doesn't necessarily lend itself to feeling that chill all the time. And I do like feeling pretty chill. I used to feel maybe a little more chill just in terms of kind of like, yeah, I just have this like background little gnawing voice just being like, you got to shovel, you got to shovel words into that newsletter furnace. Yeah, I think if there's one thing that maybe people like that I was under the mistaken understanding of until I sort of looked at it, and definitely I think a lot of people of older generations may not realize is that this generation that maybe would make like YouTube shows or, you know, live stream, which seem like these frivolous pursuits uh, seen in a certain light, it's also just a deep form of like workaholicism. Like, to really do that at like a top level, you're talking about giving up basically your entire life to it, eight hours a day for a lot of these people. Yeah, and that is right. And that is like so, no, I mean, totally right. Like Twitch streamers who are like, they're not only doing it all day, but then like there's comments from just like, sometimes just the, the the most sociopathic angry people just like just saying shit that's just like floating in your like peripheral vision for eight hours that whole time. Oh my God, insane. Yeah. So I know, I mean, I'm nowhere near that. Thank God. One thing I've noticed in a few interviews you've done is that you're pretty openly against the idea of revealing how many subscribers the newsletter has. Oh yeah. Tell me about your thinking on that. It's just as simple as like mystique preservation. Mm. Yeah. It's just cool to have the thing. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I remember when I was working, when I got my first job out of school, it was at a music magazine. And if you tell someone this album sold a hundred thousand copies in a week, I don't know. Does that feel like a lot or a little? It sort of depends, right? Uh, a lot, a lot now, a little then. <laughs> And but you and you actually have connections to the music industry, you know that. But sort of a man on the street might be like, yeah. "Oh my God, what is that, Elvis? Who are you talking? Yeah, a hundred thousand." And, and so, in part, it's just kind of like that—that that the number is not gonna, you know. I, I want us to—I want us to feel like Usher Confessions Part Two every time we come out, in terms of the music, in terms of the vibe, in terms of the sense of a superstar. Whether you need to know that we sold one point one million copies the way that Usher Confessions did in its first week. Um, <laughs> No, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just like any excuse for for an Usher reference. Is is a number ever gonna like equal just the sense of oh, this is like a, a fun, cool thing? Um, no. Well, I think there's like a straight, and like I'm guilty of this in my own brain, so I'm criticizing myself here. But there's a degree to which, when the economics of a business are completely transparent, a bunch of people pay five dollars a month. When you ask someone how many subscribers do you have? You're basically like, will you tell me your uh, yearly salary? Yeah, it's true. Which is a totally socially unacceptable thing to ask in many contexts, but in certain forms of sort of independent, like do-it-yourself business, it becomes the first thing people are interested in, in a way, is like, how? what are the economics of this business? Totally. So I think it's, it's a difficult topic because I think it's empowering for people to understand how these things work and that you can build a business for this like yourself. But I also think it's invasive to assume that everyone who's doing it is like a blank personal checkbook, you know? Right, right, right. Well, no, that's interesting. I mean, it's, um, you know, I could see other 
newsletter writers being sort of frank and candid about that stuff for us it's just kind of like um it doesn't really serve any any purpose but i mean i uh, again like i don't know if my like usher reference was coherent at all but like you know how usher feels you know how like thinking about usher's music and his like you know how that feels and like knowing that he sold either a hundred thousand copies of that record the first week or a million doesn't quite necessarily get at that feeling right if any of that makes sense I found that to be one of the most confusing things about how people write about specifically music, but uh, culture as a business. Uh, you'll sometimes read an article that'll be like, and his video went viral and now has over 350,000 plays. And I'll be like, that is not viral. That's like, not viral. That's, that's not, like, and yet, uh, yet 350,000 is an enormous number. It's so. an enormous number of people. And absolutely no disrespect to the guy who got the 350,000 plays for his experimental video or whatever. But we have no sort of collective understanding of scale now. And it creates a universe of like a lot of smoke and mirrors um, about how things work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 you know, I will say to kind of like bring this back again to like our, our you know, to, to the degree that we've got a kind of like 2012 episode 15 versus I don't <laughs> even know what episode we're on right now, uh, like reunion o together. Over 500. Holy moly. And it's wild too, like, because it's funny, like I was at episode 15 and I was like, I'm, I'm on this established podcast. This is great. Like this, this thing is, this thing might last a whole year. Yeah, this is real. Um, but, uh, back then I was still on contract at Rolling Stone. I mean, just to talk about like, to talk about money and sort of like shifting economics. Cause I think that those are, those are worth like lingering on a little bit. I had what was in the nineties, a very eighties and nineties, very common, plush deal with Rolling Stone. It was still Jan Wenner owned it. And he cared about having writers to the degree that he would consecrate those relationships with writers with these contracts where there was a lump sum kind of for the year that was divided by 12, prorated to like however many words I owed them. And I would get a check every month in exchange for writing stories for them. Um, a couple years after I moved here, so it would have been like 2016 or 2017 or something, they sold to this new dude, Penske, uh, who doesn't care about writers the same way. It's just sort of like not his vision of um, what is, I don't know, a meaningful way to make a magazine. And that's no shots to like the great writers who still write for Rolling Stone. In his, in his value system, though, like having a bunch of contract writers who are paid well, just clearly, yeah. <laughs> wasn't where his head was at. And so he killed that contract, which was already at that point, like pretty rare to find a deal like that. And I think that, you know, like the more that basically, I don't know, I, I you know, there's going to be a lot of PR talk about how Patreon and Substack kind of quote empower writers and things like that. I think that there's some grain of truth to that. And there's also you know, the same kind of, I don't know, broadly speaking, you can think about when Rolling, uh, when Radio had put out In Rainbows and they said, you'll pay us what you want. And people said, oh, this is going to revolutionize things. This is the paradigm. It's like, well, that's Radiohead. There's only so many Radioheads who can kind of let people pay what they want for an album. And, you know, there's only so many Matt Tybees. There's only so many Glenn Greenwalds kind of in this, you know, newsletter moment um, who are doing well. But I mean, you certainly see, yeah, all these incentives and pressures to just like, when you think about not just contracts getting canceled, because I was like relatively very fortunate to have a contract like that, even, you know, that far into the 2000s. Um, when you just see what magazines and publications are trying to get away with paying people, like n no wonder you're seeing this mad rush to uh, try and, you know, go directly to readers and, you know, eke out some dough that way. And the cool thing is, yeah, like $5 a month adds up really fast. 
you do continue to do magazine features now, though. You still work for uh, New York Times Magazine. Are you choosier at this point about what you do because of the newsletter? Like, how do you balance between those two career paths? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's so important for me to still do magazine writing. And, you know, specifically at the Times Magazine, I've had a great relationship with my editor. And so that's meaningful for me to kind of, you know, keep doing that. Also, it's just like a kind of writing that I really love. I just love being able to, yeah, write 7,000 words about Michael Mann, where I hang out with Michael Mann and write how he makes a movie. That's something that the newsletter can't replace. In terms of pickiness, I mean, just like on one level, just in terms of like there being only so many hours in the day and the newsletter being fairly demanding. Yeah, like I can't say yes to as much as I used to. So it has to be something that's, yeah, I guess both going to feel fun to do, but also like have a chance of resonating with people because I think that that's... um, there's this strange feeling as a writer, certainly a magazine writer, print magazine writer of publishing these things that you then don't necessarily hear much about. And maybe, you know, 10 years ago, there was like this ecosystem that you guys were a big part of on Twitter for kind of creating a like feedback machinery for that kind of writing that's dissipated. So there's this kind of like publishing out into the void sense that obviously you don't get when there's so much feedback of a kind of quote unquote community around a newsletter or something like that. So yeah, when I publish a story now, I mean, I had, there was no guarantee that people were going to care about Michael Mann, but I kind of had the sense. And before that was like a Bob Odenkirk story before that was a Seth Rogen story. I'm sort of like people who I'm interested in, but also who I have a sense a lot of other people are interested in too. Um, But yeah, just, keeping it real. It's just like, if I'm going to spend three months on a story now, you kind of like, you sort of want to maximize the chances that people are actually going to give it a look. When you do the interviews for Blackboard's Pipeline, you're sort of interviewing celebrities from like two completely different places and viewpoints, voices. Um, I'm curious, like what doing interviews in kind of the newsletter voice is like, how do you sort of announce to people like it's going to be this kind of an interview, not that kind of an interview? Yeah, right. Like there, there's this other component to the newsletter that is me interviewing people in the culture. Sometimes they work in fashion, but sometimes they're musicians or actors. Sometimes it's people I've written profiles about and stayed in touch with. And the concept there is essentially they tell me about a special thing they own that has some story behind it, not a mass produced thing, so memento or a garment or design object, you know, a curio, something else. And they say, you know, here's the story behind this thing. And ideally it's photogenic because we publish photos. Um, A lot of the voice in those interviews that you're talking about gets added after the fact. I mean, as you can hear, I don't talk the way I write the newsletter. So I kind of conduct the interviews with people the way I'm talking now and then just sort of like make my questions, just uh, (laughs) dial up the spy plane filter in post once the interview's over. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, honestly, that, like those interviews like really easy sells to people because it's tell me something about a thing you love that no one's ever going to ask you about. I mean, that's a pretty like, quote unquote, safe space to invite someone into. And, you know, they're probably more wary about an interview with a New York Times, you know, writer writ large than they are with an interview with a, a newsletter about something they love, you know? Um. It was really fun hanging out with you. I I wanted to do this interview because I I feel like I spend so much time with your voice. I wanted to hang for an hour and it um, it very much lived up to to what I imagined it could be. So thank you so much. 
Oh, thank you. No, that's so cool to hear. And, you know, I mean, to go out on like one final idea, something that I'm pretty careful about trying to not kind of exploit is this notion of the parasocial relationship that you create when you're writing in the first person, often about, you know, relatively intimate things and pretty relatively in our case, because it's kind of like the intimate thing would be like how I feel about a sweatshirt or something. Um, but yeah, when you create that kind of relationship with people, like I'm very like careful not to like sign off emails, like love you guys. Like I don't love you. I don't know you. Um, <laughs> that's not actually how love works. And there is something that can get so manipulative about that, that we see elsewhere, especially when there's like a dollar sign attached to me doing that kind of manipulation. Um, but that said, it is so nice, like whether it's talking to you again and hearing that from you, or even just like bumping into people on the sidewalk and talking to them for two seconds, like that is cool. It often is fun hangs because people are cool. And it's like a paradox at the center of the newsletter is that it is this digital thing. It doesn't exist physically. It's not a series of in-person events, right? It is a, it is a, an electronic mail uh, newsletter that shows up in people's inboxes. And yet one of our big things is like, social atomization sucks. Isolation sucks. There are all these kind of like cues in the culture right now that are just telling us stay indoors, pay people to bring you shit, binge shit, don't go outside, order everything, order your books, order your food, order your groceries. We're an extremely like go outside and talk to people, digital creation. Um, so those sidewalk encounters are really nice, you know, for that too. And podcasts like this are as well. So <laughs> thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Susan Peterson. Thanks to everyone over at Fox. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.